0: Hello and welcome to Tone Tonebenders where we talk to the sonic artists behind our favourite films, games and series. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be leading you out in the water just past where your feet can touch the bottom because that's where stuff starts to get exciting. And it's going to be exciting to talk to the sound crew of the amazing film Moon Age Daydream. A film about the life and music of David Bowie that takes the traditional conventions of a documentary profile and just completely ignores them. Creating something new that lives up to the legacy and boundary pushing that Bowie is best known for himself. Joining us today to talk about their sound work on the film are five of the key people behind the film. First up, we have supervising sound editors Nina Hartstone and John Warhurst. It's great to have you both back on Tonebenders. How are you doing today?
1: Great, thanks. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, great, thanks.
0: Yeah. We'll get into your specific roles that you played shortly. Well, I got a lot of questions about that, for sure. Uh, We also have the film's re-recording mixers, David Giammarco, who is on the sound effects end of the board. Welcome, David. Hello. Good to be here. Excellent. And Paul Massey, who had the massive weight of the music and dialogues at his end of the desk. Hello, Paul. Welcome back.
2: Hi, thanks very much. Good to be here.
0: And finally, we have the film's director, editor, writer, producer, Brett Morgan. It's always great to have directors join us to talk about sound. Welcome, Brett.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Brett, I'm going to send a question to you first. This film is a beautiful film. Let's get that out of the way. It's a given. Yeah, at its most basic elements, this is a sound film like few others. How did you decide who to trust the audio post-production when it came to a film that's so reliant on sound?
3: I had done a test on a 12-minute section uh, that's not on the bumper, a song called Station to Station in IMAX back in 2017 when I was first getting going on the project. And I was really, really proud of the sound work we did. I thought I'd achieved it and I went over to IMAX and um, very proudly was like, hey guys, uh, I'm gonna show you something that's gonna really change the way you uh, you experience music in your setting. And I played the, the sequence. And when it was over, Jason Richmond, the head of music at IMAX, looked at me and was like, cool. That was really cool. Do you mind if I show you a scene from Bohemian Rhapsody? He went and put on the live aid section from Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, the comparison between the two was quite jarring. He gave me Paul's number, and that led to the rest of the thing.
0: Uh, That's a great story. That's pretty funny, um, Brett. You were, as I mentioned in the intro, the the writer, director, and editor. You also were yesterday, uh, as of taping this, nominated for an uh, MPSC Golden Reel Award as supervising music editor on this. You're a part of the sound team for real. Everybody, congratulations on that nomination. And then today the CAS Award nominations came out and you're nominated there as well. So this is uh, obviously a, a universally respected film for sound. Maybe we can start with Nina. What did Brett come to you with the challenges on this film and what were you most scared of and maybe most looking forward to when it came to your plate?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, the first time we saw it, it was such an exciting prospect for sound, and we started our process by uh, having meetings with Brett to go through the film in a very detailed way, having having spotting sessions. We spent a long time spotting the film, didn't we, John? Uh, it was. Uh, it we, we, they were fascinating sessions, though, and I think we went, got through the first first session that was about two hours long, and I'm not sure we'd hit the fir- the five minute mark of the film <laughs> there was so much to talk about i mean there are there's just there's so there were so many creative opportunities and so much to think about i came away from all of those sessions having taken the notes and reread the notes and my brain was just churning on it of there are so many uh, ideas to you know that we could start thinking about it. It really became a, a, a massive undertaking. We we had a lot of fun doing it, didn't we, John? Yeah. And Pret. <laughs> it was great those sessions. I
4: loved them. I remember thinking we'll probably get like half of the film done in the first session, and at the end of the two hours, we hadn't actually got to five minutes into the film. I remember doing sort of a quick calculation in my head if there's if there's a two hour fifteen minute film as to how many hours it might take to get through the whole thing. Uh, actually. It, it started to get close to that sort of that sort of time. I think I think it ended up as days, days of spotting, but they were so important. And especially because it was in a time of uh, the, the sort of pandemic in, in COVID. So everything was done over Evercast. Brett was controlling Evercast and we'd go back and forth. And we there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of um, Thinking up things, there was a lot of listening to a lot of ideas that Brett had, who'd been obviously been working on this edit for years. Uh, how, how many years were you on the edit for, Brett? It had been four years at that point. I, I remember thinking you, you'd obviously had a long time to think about all of these scenes, and, and now was the time to talk about them in the uh, spotting sessions. So, which was which was a, a lot of uh, a lot, of just sort of thinking up listening to your ideas, thinking up ideas, and like say taking notes down and, and then taking them away, reading them through and uh, trying to work out how those
3: notes would then uh, translate into sound. I think what was really interesting for me about that process was when we sat down to talk, I didn't have any notes in front. Of me. So I had ideas that I wanted to explore, but I felt that the three of us were really writing the film in particular because Moon Age is a film that doesn't, the sound design is not necessarily connected overtly to the images on the screen. It really provided an opportunity and a sandbox to just, as we were talking in that moment, at, at that hour of the day, what, what inspiration we could draw from. And it, it's it, it, it was very improvisational um, and intuitive. And I think sort of in keeping with how the the rest of the film was kind of um, put together.
4: I had a slight eureka moment when you said there was a time when you said that that the sounds don't necessarily need to match the images and the sounds can be the sounds. And, And if we decide that that sound should go there, then that makes it correct. The fact that we've decided that I remember thinking, wow, that's that's so freeing compared to. Almost every other film I've ever worked on where you're so tied to the image, it has to have some kind of relation to the image in some way, but just in that one sentence sort of unchained the whole soundtrack really from from the image, which which then made you sort of be able to, us to be able to sort of discuss and think about how sounds could be used, how, how they could be used in a, in a musical way. I remember us talking about... Uh, wooden roller coasters and Tempin Bowls. I remember th- as, as we were discussing those kind of sounds, thinking about how uh, they, they're very musical in the fact that they have a kind of a, a natural tension and release to them, it, the fact that you, you get this sort of, Roller coaster going up a hill. You don't know how long that hill is for. You don't know when it's going to be released down the other side. So they're very sort of musical in, in themselves. But we, we spoke about all of these kind of things and, and you will hear all those sounds in the film. Uh, they are all scattered around in there somewhere. They're not scattered, they're weaved. <laughs> no, sorry, scattered was, was was the wrong choice of word there. That was definitely... <laughs> they, were, they were very carefully placed. They were weaved into a... Skillfully placed. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, Paul.
0: We've all been in spotting sessions where, you know, someone gets out of a truck, closes the door behind them and walks away. And, you know, we stop the spotting session and say, we're going to need the sound of a truck door closing there. And we're like, yeah, we got that covered. It's really inspiring when you get to a spotting session and you're not talking about the obvious things happening and you're talking about building something bigger than what's on the screen. So uh, I I can imagine how exciting it would have been when you left that first uh, spotting session. The music of Bowie is kind of holy ground. It means something special. Special to a lot of people and you guys started screwing around with the music of David Bowie. <laughs> that's a dangerous thing. And I'm wondering if you ever felt
4: like you went too far or if you found a line of how far you could go. I, I was just going to say one, one of the reasons why Brett had to be part of the MPSC because I think a lot of the screwing around with the with the Bowie music started with Brett really and started and, and finished with Brett. He'd would done all kinds of uh, mashups and smashups of, of the music. And uh, that, that's why it was, it was sort of, it felt as though you were just Sort of part of of that the whole music editorial side of things because of everything you've done with that.
2: I agree, and I mean, Brett had done some amazing mashups with with all of the songs, and 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 songs that you would never think would work together and overlaps and dissolves and and different layers. And then when we integrated that in with all of the sound effects and sound design that have been spotted um, at such length, um, the the layers were unbelievable, and the harmonics and just the sounds and the the feelings, the emotions that it left the the audience. And that was, I mean, huge hats off to Brett for for guiding us through all of that, because I think we were all experimenting going through that. Um, But to get back to the music, I mean, the songs are so iconic and it was so, uh, as John has mentioned, it was so um, wonderful to hear Brett say, break some boundaries. It doesn't matter if there's a mistake, there are no mistakes. If it's working, it's working. And if it's emotional for the audience, it's working. That was great, except for me, mixing most of this music from original 24-track, which is a huge thrill um, and challenge, you know, they're iconic songs. And there was a huge factor of just don't mess this up because there's a massive audience out there that doesn't want to hear it too far off of what it was originally. But they've never heard it in an acoustic space like an Atmos Theatre or an IMAX Theatre. So really that allowed us to have the freedom to give instrumentation a lot more weight within mixes and for us to experiment and play i don't think we ever really got to the point where we felt we'd gone too far away from the original mixes i think we were it was just an instinctive way of mixing it and as long as we were still recognizing the songs and the audiences wouldn't be annoyed with the way we were leaving them but actually feeling enhanced um i don't think we ever crossed that line did we brett
3: I was just thinking how amazing it is that I have not come across a single comment. I'm sure it exists somewhere. I think for the casual fan, they go into the film and they don't they probably don't realize that Paul has started from scratch, but they're experiencing the music like they've never heard it for reasons that Paul said where he stretched it out from a stereo crack into atmos. and it does allow us to kind of ex- and that was the whole reason I wanted to make the film to be honest. I mean it was Really that simple from conception is let's take one of the greatest musical artists of all time and apply their music to an Atmos IMAX environment. And what does that sound feel like? Paul approached the music with a tremendous amount of respect, but was not intimidated by it he didn't he never felt intimidated it it really watching him work in the pre-dubs he was just very focused and incredibly obviously skillful at placing those songs around the room but not having them fall apart
0: David, you're in there with the sound effects, and I say this with admiration. You were being very aggressive with how you were placing them around the room and such. Do you want to talk about how you uh, dealt with feeling out that process and finding out how aggressive you could get?
5: Well, a lot of that first stuff started with Brett because it was bold from the beginning. Like it's been said as well, there were no rules. There's no rule book on this soundtrack at all, and everything um, that's there can be and do many things. It was a lot of fun to kind of really go after it and place things everywhere and have them do different things. And also the track was very, um, it was very complex and and really well built. And there was a lot to go through because not everything could always play nicely together. And sometimes that was a good thing. And other times things played really well together. What could be heard? What did we didn't want to interfere with music where we could, Push that boundary against music and in a way the sound effects kind of become a, a band member because there's places where we don't know it's sound effects anymore and and so that whole part of it was was thrilling and and then to you know work beside Paul and with Brett the three of us just kind of in there shaping and and building this track was pretty uh it was it really was a, a chance to let go and and push beyond where we might normally go with a film that has a sort of a, a conventional through line to follow. This one didn't.
0: Nina, I want to ask you about something that made the film feel so immersive, that really brought us into the screen. And that was the crowds. Now, obviously, these concerts are from, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. These crowds were not recorded in, you know, one or nevermind Atmos. How did you go about building these
1: crowds out? That was something that we had to go out and and record, um, so. You know, the, the first job there is to try and cast people. We, we were very, you know, having spoken about it in the spotting sessions, and, and Brett really did want everyone to feel like they were experiencing Bowie for the first time rather than you're in this time looking back on something. We want to place the viewer back in that time and imagine what it would have been like to see Ziggy Stardust walk on stage and experience, you know, the, the person, the being that he he is. and And so... We, we definitely had to cast a full range of voices from very sort of young, enthusiastic people. The problem with young people today is they do not sound like young people from the 70s.
2: <laughs> that's one of the problems. Yeah,
3: that's one
1: of the problems. <laughs> we had to change their whole vernacular. I'm like, no, no, you can't say those words. These words are bad. But the great thing about getting really genuine young people and explaining to them what they're reacting to and giving them a full brief before recording them is they give some energy and some just like this is the most fantastic thing I've ever seen when they're sort of performing their responses which is great so we had to record obviously a lot of a lot of crowd um, responses to David in the audience I mean he was a very the crowds in in his um, performances they're very much part of of that event they're part of they're uh, building a part of the energy that's created um, in those moments. And then the other part that we did with that was we recorded uh, people singing along to the tracks which again gives another you know rather than the sort of sound of thousands of people screaming which can come become quite hard to listen to and and quite white noisy that the the warmth and the and the connection that people singing along to the songs um, that are being performed on stage really does uh, give you a whole different dimension to understanding the energy in, in that room and placing you in there.
2: Paul, what was your approach to the crowds in the mix? From my mixing standpoint, that adds such a a huge advantage to the weight that we can give in those concert performances, because we've suddenly got clean, multiple people, hundreds of people singing along with the songs, as they would have done. But I don't have any audience bleed, any PA bleed from the band or anything interfering. That's completely clean. We could add it, take it away as we needed. um, And it just adds so much weight to the concerts. Brett, uh, do you want to talk about your first feelings when you started hearing the crowds get added to the mix?
0: I'm assuming while you were working for the years on the picture cut, uh, the crowds weren't there yet. Do you want to talk about your first impressions?
3: It was something that I didn't bring to the conversation. John and Nina introduced the idea. And as Paul said, having the ability to choose when we wanted to peek in at certain moments of the song um but it was something that even when you don't hear it you're not cognizant of it being there it's there and it's adding this like i said a warmth that um is 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 really special and i i just saw video last night of nina and john directing the group and i i'll say that the these the actors were not the only enthusiastic ones participating. Leading them in uh, station to station is, is truly uh, that was that was really exciting.
4: It's too late to be
1: They're exhausting, those sessions. I feel like I've done a spin class at the end. So in addition
0: to uh, doing loop group for the crowds, uh, I read that you also took the crowds and
4: played them back in a, a stadium. Is that correct? Uh, John, do you want to take that? When you're trying to recreate a concert, it's, it's, it's as Paul was saying, you, you need to have all the elements separate to, to be able to kind of create a really immersive mix. If everything's tied together, then it has a knock-on effect to each other. So, so what what you also need to be able to do is is play back the uh, the music into like we, we we actually our stadium isn't quite as big as some of uh, David's stadiums, but it, it creates a similar effect by playing it into like a stand like that has a roof on that gives um, an ambience, and then we re-record that. It's called it's called worldizing. So we worldize the music, and then that gives. And then we send that to Paul with, with all the sort of different distances of microphones. So, uh, and Paul can then use that. It's, it's almost like a reverb, but it's like a, a real reverb, if you like, where, where it has the reflections of the, of the, the stadium bouncing back of the music. So, so then you have the music separate, you have the crowd separate, and you have the ambience separate, which then gives Paul complete, complete freedom to be able to uh, create an immersive mix. just set up the biggest speakers that you can possibly get your hands on and you play it at the loudest volumes that you can without all the neighbours running to the football pitch to tell you to turn it down, which does happen. Uh, and and you play for as long as you can, as loud as you can. And, and you record, you, you have microphones set up in the stands and then microphones out on the pitch and you record all of the microphones back down again. And it gives you uh, the, the the music sort of reverberating around the football stadium, but just the recording of the football stadium without without anything else tied to that recording so it gives you complete freedom uh, to be able to to mix it properly
2: in the final mix i can use the closer mics in that stadium or the distant mics in that stadium according to the shot or according to what we're trying to convey to the audience to enhance the the sort of depth and weight of the of the performance well all that work paid
0: off because it's a super immersive film And immersive right now with media is kind of like a buzzword. Uh, It's what Synergy was in the 90s. But this film really does feel immersive in a way that feels special and unique. Let's dig into the music now. You mentioned earlier that you were building the songs back up from the original 24 tracks. That's a tricky thing to do. You're trying to build these iconic songs. I read that of the 40 songs in the film, something like 37, you had the multi-tracks for. So I would like to kind of pick a song and dig into it. Uh, But first, everybody's got a Bowie story. My David Bowie story is uh, when one of my friends got married about 10, 15 years ago, we uh, put a band together for his wedding and uh, we were playing all of his favorite songs. And he loves Heroes by David Bowie. So Heroes is, uh, you know, it seems to all of us, we were like, that's a super simple song. We'll learn that one last. We'll work on the more complicated ones. And although Heroes, like technically what you're playing is really simple to get everybody in the pocket, like to feel the groove, to make it work. It, we rehearsed it seemingly endlessly, and you know I'm not saying we're amazing musicians, but it, it tricked us, that song. So I'm wondering if maybe we can dig into Heroes, uh, your experience with working with Heroes, and see. Maybe I'm out, out on left field, but how did Heroes work for you guys? Was it
2: deceptively uh, tricky, or was it just a, a simple one for you? This is amazing that you picked up on Heroes, and I can see Brett laughing his head off because... <laughs> I had exactly the same feeling going into Heroes. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't expect that anything was easy coming from David Bowie, but um, I did honestly think, okay, Heroes is the next one we're going to mix. This shouldn't be too bad. It's a pretty simple straight ahead song. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. I mean, I struggled with Heroes. We went back to Heroes. How many times, Brett? Probably about eight times. I've no idea how many times. Um, the What seems so simple... Um, the held guitar note, just the high note, but it was also with a fiddle doubling it. There was some synth elements, the, where that sat within the mix for the, for such a long time within the mix is such an art and, and hats off to the original mix because, um, it does sound so simple and it was not, I went back to that one and just pulled my hair out. And as you can see, I don't have much left, but, um, we've, we finally got to the point where I think it was, it was balanced. Well, um, but it was so easy for that very, very simple guitar line, fiddle line, holding a sustained note to totally overcome David singing. And then it was a it was just a roller coaster that would then overcome the drums so that suddenly you've lost the bass. You've lost the little guitar lines, um, the rhythm lines. Um, it's very funny that you picked up on Heroes. That was a very, very tough. I think that was the toughest song to mix within the film, to be honest. It's
3: very deceptive. It sounds like an Adrian Blue song that the his guitar is going to lead this song, but Carlos's rhythm guitar is really kind of the anchor of the cue, but it, it, and like all of the music Bowie produced in Berlin or around that period, you know, they weren't written as songs, they're kind of patchwork. So the, the way that they were created in the mixing room originally with Tony was, you know, gave birth to what we experience as heroes, as opposed to you know what paul was also challenged which is getting these raw 24 cracks in which paul had to decide at what point in the song are you going to hear the keys and the these various instruments that they weren't they they, they, they didn't necessarily have specific cues so it was it was very much I, that song was a beast <laughs>
0: Wow, I'm glad that I stumbled into that. Um, well, I guess in addition to rebuilding the songs from scratch, we're adding all the sound design in addition to the crowds and the music. John, do you want to talk about how you got the sound design in the pocket?
4: One thing that we did we did speak about in those spotting sessions was was how could we... Um, how could we take sort of Bowie's music and try and, and try and weave it into the fabric of the sound design, so it's all part of the sound design. So of course I, I immediately because we went through all the multi tracks, all looking for sort of bits and pieces. I remember getting to Ashes to Ashes and sort of you you, you know you lift up the bonnet of Ashes to Ashes and you realise that David's talking throughout all the verses, and it's like why is he talking through all the verses? I've never noticed that before. So that there were sort of these things that kind of popped up that we that I'd, I'd never I never realised, and now anytime I hear Ashes to Ashes all I can hear is him talking all the way through the verses Uh, (laughs) so there were were a few surprises in there once once you could actually go through the multi-tracks uh, but we did we did find some, some, for some very interesting bits and pieces. We used bits and pieces of his backing vocals in the in the sound design. We used the the, the synth uh, from station to station. We kept sort of repeating that reprising that throughout uh, Anytime he was speaking or talking. We would try and incorporate that in so, so you 'll hear these bits and pieces that shouldn 't belong anywhere that are just sort of will poke out from the uh, from the sound design as well that 's been sort of borrowed from his multi
0: Brett mentioned the uh, sequence in Berlin and there's a sequence where David Bowie is talking about how he's trying to create a new language and that sequence almost feels like the manifesto of the film that you're watching while he's talking Uh, like you're creating a new kind of music documentary as you're watching it and building it with pieces instead of going in with a full song and just playing it Uh, I guess maybe for Brett did did you feel that way too or is that just something that I made up?
3: No, no, no. I I think that everything, David, I don't think it's exclusive to Berlin. I think that throughout the film, he's basically providing the audience with the guide that he provided me with how to make the film. So everything that he's talking about in terms of creating art was employed in order to create a film that wasn't about David, but channeled David. Um, so really employed. All the, all of his kind of, um, methodologies and ideas on art. And I think, um, I think someone might have said this at the beginning of the, 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 the conversation, but I think the one thing that unite, united all of us was this idea of really pushing ourselves to go into uncharted territory. And by design, that's what the film was. And that's what was asked of both John and Nina in designing it and david and paul on the mix you know i think that we were all kind of presented with an opportunity and when you said a new form of documentary, i, I don't even know what genre this thing exists in and that in and of itself is quite liberating tim
5: what you were mentioning of, of the berlin where bowie before says he was going to talk to brian Eno and come up with new ways of putting music together being able to listen to the isolated tracks and hear what everyone was playing, isolating David's voice. It, it is astounding what they are doing because they, it's you put it together and it's heroes. You listen to it separately. And it's like, Oh my God, they are doing exactly what David said that they're going to do. Someone's playing a, a blues line. Someone's playing funk. It's just, it's isolating that and hearing it and it's kind of, wow, it's brilliant. It's just brilliant that it comes together and makes this, this perfect song. So that was always lots of fun on all those multi-tracks.
0: So speaking of David Bowie's voice, he, he's one of the few people that actually speaks in the film. You allow him to tell his own story. The v- footage of David Bowie runs the gamut from old black and white film up to uh, through video, up to some more modern stuff. But the sound sounds crisp and clean throughout most of the film. We see the video, old Actual video, kind of, that's degraded over time, but the sound still sounds amazing. Can someone tell me what what the sound, the dialogue sounded like when you got a hold of it, and what went into cleaning it up like that?
1: It was a, a wide variety of uh, acoustic sources, shall we say. There was There was the full gamut of uh, of different qualities of sound there in in the pieces that would turn the story but the the thing is with david he's, he's saying such interesting stuff that actually you kind of you 're not listening to to how the sound is being delivered to you you 're listening to his words, but we obviously did do an awful lot of um, clean up without trying to destroy his voice. So it's just a very sort of uh, laborious manual task to kind of editorially try and scoop around each word and each syllable to... to kind of get bring the clarity up to make sure that we understand what he's saying on some of the recordings that are particularly sort of dull and muffled um and and just bring it up so i sort of obviously started by going through and cleaning it up editorially and then and passed it on to paul (laughs) i said good luck
2: (laughs) and actually nina's being very diplomatic because some of it was horrific um (laughs) but but it's because it's not due to anyone's fault this these were recordings through the decades with different technologies and different environments, some of them were, um, you know, TV uh, interviews uh, with camera noise, people moving around, other things going on off stage. There was lighting squeals. there was radio interviews, there was um, snippets that, that Brett had found from a wide variety of sources. And I think one of the, initially we went through and did a pass through the film, but the dialogue wasn't given a huge priority because we had so much else to try and, figure out and evolve and finally as we were getting down into the last days of mixing we were able to go through and um you know along with nina's uh work i I was able to go through as well and get rid of some final sort of mastering level uh dialogue work and hopefully try and make it even throughout the film for the viewer but uh, that actually was a huge challenge and it wasn't really given a huge amount of time during the mix but i'm I'm quite happy with the way it worked out
3: editorially while i gained and always give a tremendous amount of consideration to the source material of my of the, the visuals. I didn't give much consideration to the source material on the audio, which basically meant that I was locking John and the John and Paul into some really dodgy tracks. And the real challenge and the reason I I, I think Paul, all of us really appreciate your your Comment, Tim, is that Nina and Paul had to work with all these disparate tracks, but they all had to fit in the music bed, which was the of the same quality. And I need, I wanted the music to always be very kind of present. And so that created inherent challenges when you have a weak interview track that, but you don't want to bring the music levels down to clear the space for it. It's a real kind of tug of war. And so. the other thing I would just add to that is um, I think a lot of times when you do these type of films, people take audio bites from different periods and try to smooth them out. But I was very cognizant when I would employ David's voice from the period in which he's talking or from a more omniscient point of view from later in life. And we didn't try to blend them and make it seem like the same. Sometimes David's voice was employed as texture where we would, it was the words, what he was saying wasn't as significant as the kind of cadence of his voice.
0: On Tonebenders, we always have members of the sound team talk to us. The director is someone that we don't always have. So, uh, what I kind of ma- made a tradition when we have directors on is sound teams always tell us how great their directors are. Uh, can the director kind of uh, maybe you don't ha- you don't have to say they were great? You can be honest. I, I think I assume you will. Um, can you say maybe what you learned from them and what you t- will be taking into future projects that they taught you?
3: I will say that beyond the obvious and their professionalism and their patience and their perseverance um i learned so much the stuff we were talking about earlier i had no idea about crowds i had no idea of the value of the various groups that they were able to provide and their direction of those groups was It was really important when we were going into the film to try to have different voices for each speaker. And they just completely delivered. Uh, You know, I've been doing this for 25 years and I I really felt like it was the first time I was, and I shouldn't say this, I've worked with some amazing people, but these were the most talented team I've ever worked with not just in their skill set but in their intelligence and their patience and their desire and ability to to go places that were not what they're accustomed to you know one of the things David talks about in the film this was something else we had to embrace is that virtuosity is overrated you know i we're we're talking to far virtuosos right here so They had to unlearn to a certain extent 30 years of training to put themselves almost like method directing or method acting to put themselves in a headspace or an environment to help deliver Moon Age Daydream. And that is, there are not a lot of people. Bowie talks about when he was hiring musicians for Berlin that there were not a lot of musicians who were game, who were open to the type of games. That Bowie was interested in a lot of great musicians. It's not a rub on them. would show up and be like, "Hey, man, give me this chords." I, okay, I don't. I'm not here to play around. John, Nina, Paul, and David all came, and it just wasn't like we said at our first meeting. You're gonna, we're gonna be playing in the in the sandbox. They all came and embraced the situation and the environment, and so um, that was that. That was really uh, a. It's quite fortuitous and um and honestly feel incredibly blessed and i think that they delivered arguably for for my mind is possibly one of the best sounding documentary films nonfiction films um anyone's ever heard
0: That's a pretty good high note to go out on, then. That's amazing. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I would give you a chance to say what you felt about Brett, but uh, I'm assuming that it's glowing as well. You all have giant smiles. And I just want to say quickly that the movie was something I didn't know a lot about going into. And the way it washes over you and uh, kind of sucks you into a different way of seeing a movie that uh, I really dug and I I was really happy that I got to experience it and uh, thank you for all your hard work on it and thanks for talking to me about it today it was really great to hear of your experiences Thanks very
4: much
1: Thank you very much, Tim Thank you And thank you, Brett, for those lovely, lovely words Back at you
4: Yeah, absolutely, (laughs) thank you Thanks, Brett,
5: thank you, Tim
0: I love it when we get directors on the show it's a bummer that we had some tech difficulties with Brett's mic and had to go with the Zoom feed. I had to cut a few great stories because of dropouts and glitches. But I still think it was a really great talk with some really great people. A little heads up to those listeners in the Los Angeles area. We are holding a Tonebender Sound Design Meetup on Tuesday, February 28th at 7pm. We have the covered patio set aside for us at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. It would be great to have a bunch of sound people gather all together raise our glasses, talk some shop, and tell stories of audio glory. Put it in your calendars now so we can keep the evening free. I will be in LA for a few days doing some in-person interviews for the podcast. If anyone has any ideas for people I should be talking to, please let me know. I would also love to do some studio tours while in town, if anyone would be up for a visit. You can reach out to me via email through tim at tonebenderspodcast.com. My name is Tim Muirhead and on behalf of the Moon Age Daydream team, Thanks for listening to Tone Benders.
4: Tone Benders is produced by Timothy Yearhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to TonebendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening.
0: Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.